0: Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, the real origins of the religious right in America. The leaked draft opinion from Justice Samuel Alito that would overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling has led to a torrent of analysis about how this is a moment that culminates a five-decade-long quest for the religious and ideological right wing in this country. Many analysts, including me on my recent episode with legal scholar, Kimberly Whaley, have talked about how the current composition of the court and this apparent victory on abortion mark a turning point, if not an outright victory in the culture war. But Dr. Randall Balmer, the Mandel family professor in the arts and sciences at Dartmouth College has written and he's studied extensively about the religious right. And he says that under closer examination, The real driver of the story, especially at its inception, was not really abortion at all. It was segregation, and he's here to tell us all about it. Dr. Balmer, welcome to Beyond Politics.
1: Happy to be here, Matt. Thank you.
0: It's a pleasure to have you, and I'm going to start with a bit of a confession for all of our listeners. The article that you wrote in Politico magazine that profiled your, your long study of the origins of the religious right came out in 2014. And while I like to think of myself as having a memory like a steel trap, I didn't remember reading it at the time until I just saw it in recent days. It's actually become one of the top five trending articles on Politico right now. People are looking at this Roe v. Wade, apparent overturning of Roe v. Wade, and they're organically finding your research and and your article which I guess is is very exciting. It, it must be fun for you as a scholar to see that the work that you've put in has, has become so current again.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. Uh, to be honest, I didn't know that until you just said it. <laughs> but uh, the, the recent popularity of of that piece, although at one point Politico told me it was the most popular thing they'd ever uh, published, I expect that's no longer true, but at one time uh, they had said that. And I should also add, uh, Matt, if you don't mind my saying this, that. Uh, in part because of the popularity of that article, I sat down and wrote a kind of update on that and published it in a very short book that came out last August called Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. And it not only expands that argument a little bit, not not terribly much, but it puts the whole history of evangelicalism into more historical context. And it also allowed me to put in footnotes. So if anybody uh, wants to really go to, to the sources and to check me and my interpretation of these various archival sources or whatever uh, sources I used in in that uh, political argue, uh, article, they can certainly do that. So- um,
0: Bad I, Faith gonna, is the name of the book.
1: It's called Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right, published uh, last August, August, 2021.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it really is, it, uh, look, things that get popular online are, that's not always the best yardstick by which to measure the value of, especially of a piece of what's academic research in, in one sense, but it's it's such a valuable contribution and it, it's it's eye-opening because I, look, I've been in politics, I was a Capitol Hill staffer, I was a campaign manager and consultant. I've been in politics in one way or another for 25, 30 years, my, my first introduction was volunteering for the Bill Clinton campaign in 1992. So I've been at this a while, and I, I really thought that the story, kind of that uh, origin story of the religious right really really was embedded in Roe v. Wade. And I guess that's, it, it's sort of a, um, it's a convenient story to tell ourselves, but let, let's start at the beginning and maybe we can start at the beginning for you. Why did you start looking at the origins of the the current incarnation of the religious right over the last 50 years or so? What what sent you down this path?
1: It's a great question. Uh, My field of academic study is religion in North America. And actually I was trained at at Princeton as a historian of religion in colonial America. What happened was my first job uh, was at Columbia University where I taught for 27 years. And in the late 1980s, when I began, uh, when I was still an assistant professor then, uh, there, the televangelist scandals broke. That is, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, Oral Roberts, Jimmy Swagger, you know all this stuff. And uh, believe it or not, at that time, I was really the only scholar in New York City who knew anything, or certainly was willing to talk about evangelicalism, and I had I'd grown up in that movement, so I knew something about it uh, personally, even though I hadn't really studied it in graduate school. And so I got a lot of media uh, inquiries, and I was happy to talk to, to the press because I believe very strongly in the importance of journalism. And I soon got a little bit weary of the assumption that evangelicals were either highly gullible or the moral equivalent of Jim Baker and Jimmy Swagger, And having grown up in that world, I knew, I knew better. I mean, there are many very fine folks within that um, subculture, as I call it. So I decided to uh, write a kind of travelogue, and this is a book that really kind of redirected my career in many ways, and uh, arguably launched my academic career. A book called, Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, A Journey into the Evangelical Subculture in America which we then made into a uh, three-part award-winning, Emmy-nominated documentary for PBS. So that was my kind of um, professional grounding in evangelicalism, even though I grew up in the movement, so I certainly understood it from from the ground up. My interest in the origins of the religious right really started in November of 1990, now I just published my eyes have seen the glory, uh, the year before, and I was invited to a gathering in Washington, DC at a hotel. I've forgotten the name of the hotel, but it was a small gathering. And frankly, I wasn't sure at the last minute, uh, whether I was going to go or not. I had a career, obviously, I had a young family and had responsibilities, but I decided, well, you know, they invited me, I'll go. And, I. Uh, I turned out it turned out I was in a small conference room hotel conference room with the who's who of the religious right Paul Weirich who was the strategist who was really the architect of the religious right uh, Ralph Reed who at that time was director of the Christian coalition um uh, Carl F.H. Henry the founding editor of Christianity Today magazine uh, um, um The direct mail guy, I'll get it in a minute, Richard uh, Vigory. Vigory. Yes, Yes. the conservative uh, direct mail guru. Donald Wildman, head of the uh, American Family Association. Um, Richard Land of the Southern Baptist, you know, who's who of the religious right. And it turns out that this, this event actually was meant to celebrate the 10, years, uh, 10 year anniversary of Ronald Reagan's election to the presidency in November of 1980. Well, you know, I got there and I thought, well, I didn't celebrate 10 years ago. I'm not about to celebrate now, but here I was, I'll try to make the best of it. And in the first session, Paul Weirich, who as I said, is really the architect of the religious right, made an impassioned speech. He said, let's remember, this movement had nothing to do with opposition to abortion. That simply was not why we mobilized as a political movement. No, we, uh, we mobilized instead to resist the Internal Revenue Service when it tried to go after the tax exemption of evangelical schools. And he was just utterly emphatic about that. And so in the the break, right after that session, I went up to Wyrick and I said, I wanna make sure I understood you correctly. Abortion had nothing to do with this movement. He said, absolutely not. He said, I'd been trying since the Goldwater campaign in 1964 to get these people, meaning evangelicals, interested in politics. He said, I tried everything. I tried the abortion issue. I tried the school prayer issue, which as I'm sure you remember was a big issue in the early 1960s. Uh, the pornography issue, women's rights, nothing got their attention until the IRS began going after the tax Mm -hmm. exemption of whites only, segregation academies, and in particular, Bob Jones University during the 1970s. So that's a very long answer to your (laughs) very simple question. But That is what got me started trying to uncover the real origins of the religious right and just to to uh, kind of distill the answer to that question. uh, Why was right had nothing whatsoever to do with abortion, it was instead an attempt to defend racial segregation at evangelical institutions.
0: Well, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. And first of all, I'm really glad you started with that origin story because it really does underscore the fact that, look, if people want to argue with your scholarship, I invite them to come at you. They're going to lose because you were there, you were literally and figuratively rubbing elbows with the architects of the, the, the ideological and religious right. And you have primary sources, which are also in your article and in your book. So I, I you know, people can doubt, but this is this is very real. The other thing I, I just want to pick up on, and maybe this is a little bit of a, a personal angle on this. It's so hard in our current politics for people to absorb a, a discussion like we're going to have without glomming a, a, a strictly partisan view onto it. And yeah. I want to be very clear about the fact that. What you're talking about is the very real historical origins of the religious right, what their motivations were, and how they began to interact with the abortion issue. We are not, either of us, by any means casting aspersions on evangelicals per se. Many of their leadership perhaps cynical. And as you mentioned a moment ago, for people who are under the age of, I don't know, 40 or so, you probably don't remember Jimmy Swaggart and Jerry Falwell, (laughs) and some of these other wonderful characters who, um, Google them, just Google them. It's it's quite a few. (laughs) But I I mean, I just want to say on a personal note that I very much associate myself with what you're saying about many evangelicals, wonderful, wonderful people. I had an experience in college, I went to a very liberal, liberal arts school, I went to Swarthmore college. And one day a friend of mine from the ultimate Frisbee team of all things knocks on my door. He was part of a Bible study group. And he invited me to Bible study. He's met an evangelical. Sure. And, you know, I'm Jewish. So I made a little light of it. And I, I said, Oh, I don't know, man, how do you feel about the old Testament? He looked <laughs> me in the eye and he said, Oh, I, I think it's crucial. Well, of course I felt like a jerk because in that moment I realized this is someone who truly passionately believes and with an open heart and and nothing but kindness and respect is inviting me to share something meaningful with him i i'm i'm a jerk i'm a i'm a jerk <laughs> so anyway that's where i come from on this we're not we're not going after evangelicals per se but there is there's something very inauthentic in this in this supposed origin story let me pick up then on where you kind of start the, the myth making about the yeah. origins of the religious right in your article you say that this is kind of an origin story that the leaders of the movement like to repeat in his 2005 book jerry falwell says i sat there staring at the roe v wade story when the ruling came out growing more and more fearful of the consequences of the supreme court's act and wondering why so few voices have been raised against it and some of these anti-Roe crusaders, in your words, went on to call themselves new abolitionists, you then one sentence later say, that abortion myth quickly collapses under historical scrutiny. So <laughs> you, you started to allude to, to, to the role of Bob Jones University. What did you start to find about the role of tax exemption for these religious schools?
1: Well, it's, uh, first of all, let me, do you mind if I just go back just please, a please. and and say a little bit more what I, about what I call the abortion myth. And again, mm, the abortion please. myth is the fiction that evangelicals galvanized as a political movement in the 1970s to oppose Roe v. Wade. That I call the abortion myth. And let me give you a bit of evidence for that. And further on background, before I get to that, sorry to that for saying this. Uh, it's important to understand that for the middle decades of the 20th century, uh, roughly the mid-1920s to the mid-1970s, evangelicals were not engaged politically, certainly not in any organized way. Many of them not even registered to vote, and I can talk about why that is and so forth, but uh, they did not organized into a political movement until the 1970s. And again, we'll talk about the catalyst for it, but it wasn't abortion. Let's say that, let, let's leave it there. Let me start with a bit of, uh, of evidence for what I call the abortion myth. First of all, back in 1968, obviously this is several years before the Roe decision, Christianity Today, which is the flagship magazine for evangelicalism, sponsored a, co- a, a conference, uh, an academic conference with another evangelical group called the Christian Medical Society. And they, uh, this was a gathering, some of the heavyweight theologians of the evangelical world. And they met over several days and to discuss the whole issue of abortion and the moral uh, consequences of abortion. And they issued a statement at the end of that conference And I actually happen to have it right in front of me uh, because I was working on something else before this interview. The statement read, and I'm, I'm reading verbatim, whether the performance of an induced abortion is sinful, we are not agreed. But about the necessity of it and permissibility for it under circumstances, under certain circumstances, we are in accord. That's really quite a remarkable statement Mm. for a movement that claims to to be um, anti-abortion kind of through and through. Uh, A bit more evidence here for what I call the abortion myth. Meeting in 1971 in St. Louis, Missouri, the messengers or the delegates to the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution calling for the legalization of abortion. Wow. Southern Baptist Convention is not really known as a readout of liberalism, but 1971, they passed that resolution. They reaffirmed that resolution in 1974, a year after the Roe, after v. Wade.
0: Roe v. Wade.
1: And again in 1976.
0: Wow.
1: Jerry Falwell, by his own admission, did not preach his first anti abortion sermon until February 24th, 1978. That's more than five years after the Roe v. Wade decision. When the Roe decision was handed down, the reaction on the part of evangelicals, for the most part, was silence. Virtually nothing was said about it. The voices that were raised, such as W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas and a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Criswell praised the Roe v. Wade decision as marking an appropriate distinction between public policy and private behavior. So uh, again, I call this the abortion myth. The abortion myth is the fiction. And I'll even give you one more quote, which happens to be in Please. front of me. And um, this is uh, from, believe it or not, from James Dobson, who of course later became an implacable foe of abor- abortion. He acknowledged in 1973, again, that's the year of the Roe decision, that the Bible was silent on the matter of Abortion, and therefore, it was plausible to argue for an evangelical to believe that, quote, a developing embryo or fetus was not regarded as a full human being. James Dobson made that statement in 1973. So, again, that's what I call the abortion myth of origins that has been perpetrated over the decades by the leaders of the religious right, even though it is uh, utter fiction.
0: That's I'm actually I am see this is why you're the scholar and I'm the radio host, because you, you were right to do that step back there to let's dispense with the myth first. And <laughs> it's what's really remarkable to me. You know, you, you mentioned that 1968 symposium and one of the further quotes that that's in your article is that when Christianity today refused to say that abortion was sinful, it cited individual health, family welfare, and social responsibility as justifications for ending a pregnancy. I mean, that's a pretty broad list. That is, I mean, you could fit a lot under the definition of social responsibility, family welfare. I mean, those are all of the reasons that pro-choice advocates today say that women might be needful of, of seeking an abortion And the the fight has become over that first part, individual health, and it's gotten even more extreme. It's become life when the life of the mother is at risk. And these statements in this formative period, both before and after Roe, are not only silent on on those issues, they're actually affirmatively speaking what what by today's ears sound like pro-choice positions. All right it wasn't really abortion. We know that pretty firmly from your scholarship. What was it really?
1: Again, some historical context in order to understand the background for this. Uh, The the deep background probably is the Brown v. Board of Education ruling of May 17, 1954, that uh, called for the, uh, or mandated the uh, desegregation of public education. And then 10 years later, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, signed by Lyndon Johnson on July 2nd, that forbade racial segregation or racial discrimination in public institutions. What happens in the South, and this is probably the best way to get at the story, is that uh, there was, as we know, a great deal of resistance to the integration of public schools. And in Holmes County, Mississippi, The first year of integration, the number of white students in the Holmes County public schools dropped from over 700 to 28. Mm. The second year of desegregation, the number of white students in the public school system in Holmes County, Mississippi, dropped to zero. At the same time, three segregation academies, whites only, church sponsored, applied to the Internal Revenue Service for tax-exempt status. And a group of parents in Holmes County, Mississippi said, hey, wait a minute, this isn't right. So they filed suit to block the granting of tax-exempt status to these segregation academies. Well, that case was merged with another case, went up through the court system, and I don't have time to get into all the details here, and finally reached the district court for the District of Columbia in a case called Green v. Connolly. And on June 30th, 1971, the judges in in that case in the District Court for the District of Columbia issued a ruling that said, in effect, any organization that engages in racial segregation or racial discrimination is not by definition a charitable institution. And therefore it has no claims on tax exempt status. Well, as it happened, Richard Nixon was the president at the time, and he directed the Internal Revenue Service not to issue any further tax exempt, tax exemptions to such schools. And as the Internal Revenue Service over the course of the 1970s began enforcing that Green v. Connolly decision by inquiring about the racial policies at these various institutions, That got the attention of people like Jerry Falwell, who in 1967 had started his own segregation academy in Lynchburg, Virginia, and other groups, including Bob Jones University, um, which is a case unto itself in many ways, as as, um, many people know and, and remember. But as the Internal Revenue Service began, to enforce the provisions of the Green v. Connolly decision. That sent shockwaves through the leadership of of evangelicalism, particularly with Jerry Falwell. And that proved to be the catalyst for the organization of white evangelicals politically in a movement we now call the religious right. Again, to emphasize the previous point, had nothing to do whatsoever with abortion. It was a defense of racial policies at these evangelical schools that, provide, that provided the catalyst for the emergence of the religious right in the
0: 1970s. So given this very evident, and now that you lay out all of that evidence, the very obvious reality of, of that origin story, I mean, I guess it seems it seems sort of evident on the face of it why the leaders of this nascent movement would want to cloak their, their real intentions, their real aims in this abortion story rather than the much more vile segregation story. Although I don't know, I, I, I guess you could argue that the abortion story isn't exactly um, clothed in glory either. But do you, what did you uncover? Was there anything explicit that, that you were able to find in, in your research about them talking about and thinking about and strategizing about that shift over to the focus on abortion and, and sure. why that started to take hold? Yeah,
1: I, I think the, we under, have to understand that by understanding and appreciating uh, the genius of Paul Wyrick, again, the architect of the religious right. I sometimes re- refer to him as the evil genius, but he was he was savvy enough to recognize that even though he, the IRS issue of tax exemption got the attention of people like Jerry Falwell and other leaders of uh, this nascent movement, the religious right, he Weyrich, needed a different issue if he was going to galvanized grassroots evangelicals. And so again, he's kind of searching around for a new issue and it really falls into his lap in the midterm elections of 1978. Now let's uh, again, um, backpedal just a step here. Prior to the midterm elections of 1978, Paul Weyrich went to the head of the Republican National Committee. At that time it was William Brock, a former US Senator from Tennessee. And uh, Weirich went and said, hey, I want some money to organize these uh, evangelical voters. And according to wyrick Brock looked across the desk at uh, wyrick and said, what are you talking about? Who are, you? Who are these people? Are you crazy? I'm not going to give you money for this. And so wyrick was uh, angry enough to resolve to go out and, in his words, elect some improbable people to the Senate in 1978. And so he focuses on four Senate races. One is New Hampshire, where Thomas McIntyre, the Democratic incumbent was running for reelection. One was Iowa where the Democratic incumbent, Dick Clark, and not the band leader, but the Senator, was running for re-election. And two Senate races in Minnesota. One of them for the unexpired term of, Hubert Hump, of uh, Walter Mondale, who of course mm-hmm. was Jimmy Carter's vice president. And in those campaigns, the final weekend of the campaign, pro-lifers, Roman Catholics, because abortion was a Catholic issue throughout the 1970s, leafleted church parking lots. And two days later, in an election with a very low turnout, all four anti-abortion candidates defeated the favored Democratic candidates for the U.S. Senate. And I remember reading through Paul Wire's papers, which are improbably at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, Wyoming, and looking at his con- his con- uh, correspondence around the midterm elections of 1978. And it's almost like the papers started to sizzle <laughs> because he realized he finally had the issue that was going to mobilize grassroots. Evangelicals. I sometimes refer to the abortion issue for Paul Weyrich and the religious right as a godsend, because it allowed them to, to divert attention from the real origins of their political movement, which were, again, a defense of racial segregation in evangelical institutions. Weirich also was able, and this is, I mean, he, he, he wrote a play, he wrote a page into the Republican Party playbook that is still being used. He was also very deftly able to divert the attention away from the defense of racial segregation and instead cloak the issue as a matter of religious freedom. These schools, Bob Jones University, should be able to have their own racial policies because of the First Amendment and ra- and religious freedom, all the while cleverly glossing over the fact that tax exemption is a form of public subsidy, right? Um, and you know, I, I, I can go into this, so let's do it quickly. Uh, I teach at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. Dartmouth College has a huge campus. Dartmouth College pays no property tax because it is a tax exempt institution. Now, I don't know, frankly, whether this is true or not, but many such institutions voluntarily contribute money to the local communities to pay for fire services and police protection and things like that. And I don't frankly know if Dartmouth does or not, I expect they probably do, but the point is, that all of the other citizens of Hanover including myself have to pony up a little bit extra in order to cover the taxes that are not collected from tax exempt institutions. This includes churches as well as colleges, Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina and so forth. So tax exemption is a form of public subsidy. And for that reason, the public as determined by the U.S. Congress and the Supreme Court, has every right to place certain stipulations on that on the conditions for that tax-exempt standing. So when Weirich is able to deflect attention away from the real reason for the activism of the religious right, that is a defense of Racial segregation, and instead try to cloak it in this sort of uh, uh, grand constitutional terms of uh, freedom of religion, uh, he's really uh, performing a sleight of hand. And then the abortion issue comes along later, and that provides uh, a, a kind of meaning for, uh, you know, a kind of uh, righteous um, uh, cloak for the activism of this movement that began with racial uh, defense of racial segregation um, you know the other issue the other thing about the the abortion issue is, as many people pointed out is that it's a it's a relatively uh, low cost issue uh, fetuses don't demand health care they don't demand education uh, they're not looking for housing uh, and so it was a pretty um, I, and I'm pleased I do want to make clear that I'm not I'm not uh, casting aspersions on those who are are fervently and I'm sure sincerely uh, against abortion I, I that's not the point but the point is that this a is political a book, stand has its, it has its origins in a very different place than uh, uh, from the uh, defense of uh, of the so-called pre-born
0: I I could easily see someone listening to this episode and even getting all the way to this point and saying, you know, Dr. Ballmer and Matt, this is all very interesting and it looks like we got a little bait and switch here historically, but does it really matter? And to that end, I'm going to construct my own argument, but I'm really going to turn it into a question because I want to hear your argument. You're steeped in this about why this matters. And I have a couple of reasons that I think it matters. One is that, This thread of religious freedom as a political matter and as a matter of jurisprudence is alive and well. And the watering of, I'm about to switch metaphors here from a thread to a plant, just go with me people. But the watering of of this particular shrub was very much begun by Paul Wyrick and you know these architects of the anti-abortion movement which they did as a cloak over their segregationist intent and it's it's with us it's very with us just look at the hobby lobby decision yes. the, this idea you know just look at you know Absolutely. if you're gay and you live in indiana and you'd like a wedding cake you know just look at the, the kinds of very current rulings that are still with us yes. and are going to continue to be with us if the language of this draft opinion goes through, because the idea of compulsion, privacy, a zone of privacy where the government doesn't reach is now very much under threat under this opinion. A second point that I'd like to raise is that you mentioned Paul Wyrick as one of the architects of the of the religious right, but also one of the architects of the ideological right, because he was a co-founder of the Heritage Foundation. Well, we yes. did a deep dive show with Professor E.J. Fagan. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And he is literally writing the book on the Heritage Foundation. Actually, I interviewed him last year. Maybe that book is out. We might have to have E.J. back. (laughs) But when you go through that episode, which I urge people to do, go back in the Beyond Politics podcast, you see that the whole idea here was to create a conservative ecosystem for ideas that were very much not in the mainstream and to legitimize them. And the entire kind of economic and cultural approach of the Republican party since the creation of the Heritage Foundation has followed that pathway. And so I guess my ultimate point here is that even if the adherence to a a, a kind of a pro-life agenda was only a cover story, adopted for a more nefarious agenda by the religious right. It has had and continues to have very real consequences. It drove a lot of our politics for the last 50 years, and it is continuing to drive our politics today. And so where it comes from, and the fact that it was sort of grown in a lab for very cynical reasons, to me matters. So that's my interpretation. But what's your interpretation? No, what's, I think that's what's right. your case. No, I, I think
1: you're absolutely right about that. And uh, you know, I mentioned that uh, Paul Weirich wrote a page of the modern Republican playbook by uh, pleading religious freedom uh, for these these various people and these various organizations, including, as you said, the Hobby Lobby case and the Colorado Cake Makers case, and so forth. But I think the other point to be made here is that the the through line from the origins of the religious right to Donald Trump is racism. And I have to say that I resisted that conclusion for a very long time. Mm. And I have defended evangelicals uh, for much of my life and career against the charge of racism. After the 81% support of white evangelicals for Donald Trump in 2016, I could no longer do so. And so I went back, and this is Part of the work I did for Bad Faith, the the, the book that came out last August, um, and said, you know, what is the what is the connection here between the origins of the religious right and Donald Trump? And there are a lot of connections. Um, you know, the Ku Klux Klan is figures into this. Uh, Ku Klux Klan was well, one of the major contributors to the formation of Bob Jones University in Greenville, wow. South Carolina, in the nineteen twenties. What's his name? I'm liking it. Tony Perkins, the head of the Family, Family Research, Research Council. Yes. Uh, has in, had entanglements with the Ku Klux Klan, including the White Citizens Council, which, as you know, is uh, what people call the Uptown Klan. Uh, Roy Moore, various comments he made when he was running for Senate. But also Ronald Reagan
0: launched his campaign for president in Philadelphia, Mississippi. That's I was about to say exactly that. There you go. But not only that.
1: Reagan got into politics to oppose the Rumford Fair Housing Act in 1964 that sought to ensure equal access to housing. He was a vigorous opponent of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Throughout his campaigns, he frequently invoked the racially charged phrase law and order. And He also concocted so-called welfare queens. He was never, never able to identify any one of these, but he was sure they existed. Uh, women of color who live off the public dole in lives of luxury. Now again, he was never able to produce any of these, but he was sure they existed. Uh, he was a stalwart supporter of the apartheid regime in South Africa as president He decimated the Civil Rights Commission. And as you said earlier, to me, and this is the most most visible uh, symptom, I guess we'll we'll call it. Uh, Reagan chose to open his general election campaign in 1980 in of all places, I still can't believe it, of all places, the Neshoba County Fair in Philadelphia, Mississippi. The place where 16th century summers, 16 summers earlier, as you know very well, Matt, uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan, in collusion with the local sheriff's department, abducted, tortured, and murdered three civil rights workers. And Reagan, of course, was the master of symbolism. But lest anyone miss his intent, his speech on that occasion at the Neshoba County Fair in Philadelphia, Mississippi, August 3rd, 1980 talked about states rights, which was the age old segregationist battle cry. So um, my argument is that the linkage between the origins of the religious right in racism, in the defense of racial segregation and Donald Trump in 1960 and again in in 2020, the link is is Ronald Reagan. And uh, I I, I think it's uh, foolish to ignore that and my also my sense also is that unrepented racism tends to fester and for white evangelical vo- voters to fail to recognize the real origins of their political movement i think um, you know gives us what we saw in 2016 and again in 2020
0: i want to we only have a couple of minutes left and i, I want to throw an idea at you that's a little bit more forward looking the last grass tops I don't even want to say grass tops. It was much more astroturf political movement that we saw emerge on the right, was a kind that that was concocted in a lab, was the Tea Party movement in 2010. And that was another movement that escaped lab containment, if I can not freak people out in a pandemic sense, and eventually ended up eating the Republican Party more than as much as they gained in the 2010 cycle, and they gained a lot, especially in redistricting, I mean, reverberations that, again, we continue to feel 12 years later, in in an immediate sense, they went too far. Voters reacted with revulsion in 2012 and 2014. It flamed out, and it, it arguably hurt the Republican Party more than the Democrats, this kind of effort to whip people up around a constructed set of issues. Now, you've drawn an origin story here that goes mm-hmm. way further back, but here we are on the verge of a Supreme Court ruling that is going to take this other movement that escaped lab containment and became very real and very true and very part of Republican identity now for, for, for recent decades. And it's it's about to become manifest. Do you think there's a prospect of the same thing happening now that this aim this, this concocted aim is about to be realized. Where do you think things go from here? And I'm sorry, I'm leaving you just about two minutes to to answer that.
1: Well, I, I think you're right. I, I think there is going to be a, a huge backlash against this uh, apparent, apparent reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision. And also, I think for the Republican parties, the, the abortion issue has been very valuable for, for the Republican Party. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be cynical about that. Uh, but I suspect some leaders of the Republican Party have been cynical about that. That is to say that this has a, been a movement that has uh, somehow taken hold with a lot of their voters. And when that that issue is resolved, apparently to their satisfaction, I think that's probably going to uh, enervate some of the ardor that... Uh, Republican voters have have brought to the polls in recent years. Now, I I think the wild card again, is everybody says quite rightly is is Donald Trump and what he has to say and what he's going to do. And uh, he has a way of kind of upending um, conventional wisdom. So maybe he can uh, somehow uh, uh, rekindle the fire in some way, now that the abortion issue no longer seems to be uh, Mm. an issue for the right, it certainly is for the left. So I I I don't know I uh, Matt I usually beg off such questions by saying I'm a historian not a prognosticator but uh, you you, you trap me into this one so <laughs>
0: I, I I gotcha well look here's what I think the value of first of all it's a fascinating fascinating and valuable piece of history which I appreciate and second of all I I, I know the aphorism history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes and if there's one value proposition that we can all take from your work it's this is going to happen again. There's going to be a, a, a an intentionally concocted cause. And we're going to, at least with the value of the hindsight that you provided us, hopefully be able to see it coming a little bit better next time. Dr. Baumer, thank you so much for being on Beyond Politics.
1: It's been my pleasure, Matt. Thank you.